Good morning, Cornerstone, and happy Sunday. My name is Brian Carlucci, one of the pastors at Cornerstone, and just want to welcome you to Church Online. Uh, we know there are a lot of people joining us for the first time during the season where people are staying at home. Um, so whether you're in Boulder County tuning in, uh, in in a new way joining our community, or you're in different parts of the country, or even around the world, we know we have people from different parts of the world tuning in. We're just glad you're joining us, and we would love to know that you're joining us each Sunday. And so if you go to our website and go to our church online or new to church online page, you can let us know that you're here. We love to pray for you and just know who's connecting with us. I want to mention a couple other things before I get into the message this morning. We have a big event taking place on Thursday, June 4th at 8 p.m. It's called our Summer Vision Night. We want to share a vision about what we want to help create at Cornerstone this summer. And we also want to share some important details about how the reopening is going to go. Um, we're putting together a plan that is as safe and responsible as possible that allows us to gather together when we're able. So we want to share some of those details, answer questions, and then also give you an update on our Dream Boulder initiative. So Thursday night, June 4th, I think Carrie's going to share a little bit more of that after the message today. And then lastly is I just want to congratulate our kids. School is over. And uh, we're pumped for you guys, and we're really proud. And I just, uh, we, we, uh, we're proud of your flexibility and your resilience the last few months. And, you know, I should also add to the parents, school is over. And we're also very proud of you, and good job. And uh, we're proud of your resilience and your flexibility. So uh, all that's a big deal. A few weeks ago, uh, back in the Carlucci house, it was a couple weeks into the stay-at-home orders and homeschool, my wife Elise pulled me aside, and she said, Brian, you haven't spent any intentional time with the boys the last few weeks. All you've been doing is working, and uh, you, you ought to do something. And so I did what every good husband does when his wife tells him that he's doing something wrong. I pretended to ignore her, but then did exactly what she told me to. And so we came up with a plan. Uh, my boys at the time were going to bed at all different times, waking up at different times, doing their schoolwork all, you know, all throughout the day. And so we came up with a plan that every morning at 8.30, they would be in my office and we'd have family time together. And so uh, during that time, we'd pray together. We'd do an update on the day. We'd read the scriptures. But one of my favorite things to do anytime I have room with the boys is we read biographies of amazing people. And so last month, we read to my boys the, the biography of George Washington Carver who's one of my favorite people from the past. And, and those of you that have listened to my preaching before, you know that I love history. And I want to tell you a little bit about Carver. He's an amazing person. And, and uh, I'm only going to get to share a little bit here. But I can tell you, if you want to be delighted this week, research him. And look up his list of virtues. It'll just put a smile on your face. Uh, but George Carver uh, was, was born a slave. And like all slaves during that time, he experienced tremendous loss during his life and uh, lost, lots of lost opportunity. But by the grace of God, he was brought into a home of a loving white couple and was later connected to some other couples who exposed him to learning and ideas and art and eventually an education. Now, someone as brilliant as Carver that Time Magazine called the Leonardo da Vinci, the black Leonardo da Vinci, they called him that in 1941, that's all he needed. He just needed a little bit of room for his, for his mind to grow. And, and over the years, he would be known as a famous artist, a brilliant inventor, a world-famous botanist, an engaging Bible study leader for the church that he was a part of, and a professor at Tuskegee University in Alabama. He was a scientist of scientists. Edison tried to hire him several times. 
he was marveled at by people like Ford and um, and Rockefeller and Carnegie. They, they just all saw this guy as just an intellectual giant. He's most well known for transforming rural farming practices in the South. And so during this time, there were a lot of particularly black poor farmers who were trying to farm during the oppressive laws of, of, the, of the Jim Crow South. And Carver cared about his people. And he noticed that many of the ways that they were going about their farming was not helpful. In fact, at the time, cotton was king. And so everyone was growing cotton. But the thing about cotton is every time you plant cotton, it, it, it hurts the soil, it pulls the nutrients from the soil. And so if you continue to plant cotton, your cotton yield gets less and less every year. And so this had been happening for generations. And so you have these poor farmers, and every year it's a little bit harder for them to make it from the crop. So Carver comes in and he teaches the people how to nurture the soil and rotate the crops and grow different things. And he taught them a number of different uses for things like the sweet potato. But the thing that really made him famous was what he taught them about the peanut. So at the time, the peanut wasn't very popular. But he came up with literally thousands of uses of the peanut. And today, there are still something like 265 popular uses of the peanut that all come from George Washington Carver. His innovation, his curiosity, and the way God allowed him to create changed the economic future of those Southern farmers. Now, I tell you that today because when you read about Carver, you read about his inspiration. And his inspiration came from the first, first few chapters of the book of Genesis, which is what we're going to be diving into this summer. We're starting a new series today called Beginnings, or in Hebrew it's called Bereshit. And Carver used those first few chapters of God creating to inspire his life and to place him in a context that gave him tremendous purpose. So I want to read you a couple of his quotes. He said, the more I learned about the beauty, complexity, and interconnectedness of the world, the more convinced I was that it could only have come to be or be formed supernaturally by the hand of God. He goes on to say, our creator is the same and never changes despite the names given him by people here and in all parts of the world. Even if they gave him no name at all, he would still be there within us, waiting to give us the good of his earth. And then lastly, this really describes his legacy. It says, nature in its varied forms are the little windows through which God permits me to commune with him and to see much of his glory by simply lifting the curtain and looking in. I love to think of nature as a wireless telegraph or as wireless telegraph stations through which God speaks to us every day, every hour, and every moment of our lives. And so today, as I mentioned, we start this new series called Bereshit, or Beginnings. We're diving deep into uh, these first uh, stories that we get in the first book of the Bible called Genesis. And we're combining a couple things. So we're combining some of those great stories from the book of Genesis. And we're combining one of our favorite ways at Cornerstone to teach the scriptures called ancient words. And so what we do is we look at familiar stories, but we highlight certain ancient Hebrew words. And if we understand those words, we understand better what God is trying to communicate to us. And so we're going to get to those words in a moment, Bereshit, beginning, and God, Elohim. But I do want to mention a few things uh, just about the series and then about the book of Genesis. First of all, these themes that we're wanting to bring you during this series are meant to be anchors, and they're meant to place us within the world and to give purpose for our life. 
And I want to use that, that illustration of an anchor for a moment. So I use that word most of the time people think of those heavy iron anchors, nautical anchor, anchors that ships drop. It places the ship in a certain place. It holds it steady in a moving ocean. But there are other types of anchors. And so today we're filming this message in El Dorado Springs. And uh, there's just this, we're in this canyon and there are these magnificent sandstone cliffs that rise up out of the ground. And the rock faces are sheer. They, they, they go straight up, completely vertical. And because of that, it attracts a number of, of climbers. In fact, there are 500 technical routes that climbers from all over the world come here to test themselves with. Now, these people are absolutely nuts. And I know we have some climbers in our church. I'll just tell you, you, are, you guys are crazy. I would never do anything like that. But I am absolutely impressed that you can climb the things that you can climb. Now, one thing I do know about climbing is that there are certain steps that must be taken and anchors are what keep the climber safe and allow the climber to ascend to new heights. And so when you climb, you climb a bit and then you place an anchor into a crevice or a crack in the rock and that anchor tethers the climber to, climber to the mountain and allows them to take risks and go to new heights. So the climber will place an anchor, he'll climb up to another height, but then he'll place an anchor again, and then he'll climb, and then he or she will place an anchor again. Every anchor is important. They all build on one another, and you can't skip a step. Now, this is how it works with life. God gives us these anchor stories. Most of them occur in the first part of Genesis, and we can't skip them. They allow us to have new vision, to see things, to better understand what God is doing in the world, what he has done in the past, and what he wants to do in the future. And so that's what we're after here. And so Genesis, um, a book of anchors, anchoring stories. It's meant to communicate meaning. I do you want to mention this before we get to those words? One of the problems that people, modern people have with the book of Genesis is they expect it to answer questions that it's not meant to answer. And so we live in the 21st century, and a lot of times people read the book of Genesis, and they're asking 21st century questions, like, how is it that God created? Show me the scientific proof. Genesis has never pretended to be a book that's about the how creation came to be. It's more about the who and the why. It's a book of meaning, not of scientific detail. And so let me give you a, a couple examples of how um, you, know, you can see certain things different. And so people read the book of Genesis and, and you hear about God creating. And a lot of people say, was it a literal six days or did this occur over thousands of years? Listen, there is room within Orthodox Christianity to believe uh, that the, the, the world was created in a literal six days and also that it took thousands of years. What matters is that there is a creator different from us who placed us in this world to respond to him. That's what matters. Another thing people get hung up on is they, they wonder, how old is the earth? How old is this story? So if you research El Dorado Canyon today, you'll see that a lot of people believe that these sandstone cliffs are a million and a half years old. That's very, very old. There are a lot of Christians who believe the earth is younger than that, that creation happened uh, before or, or since then, that, uh, in a much um, closer time frame. There's room within Orthodox Christianity to believe that there's a creator God and for us to have different ideas about how old or young the earth is. Okay, so it's not meant to answer 21st century scientific questions, but it doesn't mean that those things aren't valid or that it disproves or goes against science. It certainly doesn't mean that. 
Here's the other thing Genesis does, so I want you to keep this in mind as we go through this series. Genesis is meant to be a corrective narrative. Back in ancient times, when Moses first began to share the story revealed to him about how the world was created, there were people that believed that there were many gods. And Genesis is meant to be corrective to that. It pulls the one true creator God out of the many gods. In ancient times, uh, people believed that the gods were the rocks or the moon or the sun. And even today, there are people that worship the elements. Genesis is meant to be corrective to that. It pulls the creator out of the creation and separates the two. One of the ancient narratives that was really popular uh, when Genesis was first given to Moses is that God created people because he just wanted them, the gods created people, I should say, because they wanted slaves, servants. Genesis corrects that. God created us in love to be co-heirs, co-creators with him. There's so much more purpose and love in the Genesis story. Let me give you a correction that we have for today. We live in a world that one of the popular notions about how everything came to be is that it was just by random chance. That the, the world is, and life is meaningless, that we come from nothing, we're going to nothing. Uh, that secular worldview was very popular in the last half of the last century. In fact, we were told that it would become the prominent way that everyone thinks. We actually know now that that's not true. There's something inside most people, even modern people, that says life is more full of meaning than that narrative would allow them to, to they, could, they can't uh, reconcile the two, that narrative and what they sense, the meaning in their own life. So Genesis comes in and corrects that. Says your life and this world and the people around us in culture is full of design, purpose, and meaning. It's a beautiful story. All right, now saying all that, let's get to our first anchor. And the first words we wanna share in the beginning, God, Bereshit Elohim. I want to go through both of those words. First of all, Bereshit, beginnings. It simply means what you think it means. It means the start, that which is chief among others, that which is first. Uh, it's often used, the word Bereshit is often used to describe the first life out of the ground after a long winter. There was a time that all of this that I can see right now and that you see in the shot, and all that you see outside of your window and all that you see in your house, there was a very real time that none of that existed. There was a time that uh, your heart didn't beat. There was a time that there wasn't life on this earth, a very real time. And that moment of there being a world that was formless and void, a world that was empty of purpose and meaning, that moment met God's will when he said, I want to create. And God's will met his ability to create, and he spoke things into being. But there was a point that it all started. It all started with him. So even though God has no beginning, all that we see in our story certainly has a beginning in God. And so to begin to answer the question, how is it this all this came to be? It all starts with, in the beginning, God. Bereshit Elohim. He is the first. He is the first among all the things. And so if we think about the themes that we're going to teach in this series, he's the first of all of them. He's the first to create, the first to speak, the first to share, the first to love, the first to submit, the first to work and then to rest. He's the first to make a home for another. He's the first to give and receive love. He's the first to promise. He's the first to grieve. He's the first to bless. 
and he's the first to walk with another person. All things are from him and under him and by him. In the beginning, God. Bereshit Elohim. So what we see here, though, is that God is the start of all those things. But here's something that's hard for a preacher like me to explain. But really, the reason it's hard to explain is we have a hard time understanding this next truth that comes in the name of God. God has always been. My boys ask me, like, Dad, how is it that God could just always be? No one created him. I say, absolutely. He is uncreated. He has, has no beginning. The word we use to describe God this way is that he is eternal. There has never been a time that he didn't exist. There's never been a time that he wasn't. There's never been a start to God. There's never been a beginning to God. He is uncreated and eternal, infinitely past, present, and future. If you jump ahead in the story to Exodus chapter 3, God is revealing himself to Moses, and he uses this name, and he uses another name for God that I'll mention here in a moment. But God says, I am that I am. And, and the meaning behind that phrase, it's one that we don't use very often, is that he was and is and is to come. Elohim means eternal, the eternal uncreated one. So that's really the Jewish understanding that we begin to understand God with. Now you add to that Christian understanding. More has been revealed through Jesus. And we see that this eternal God actually has certain dimensions to him. In the beginning, there was God. But specifically, in the beginning, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you know that God is the first family? God is the first community. God is the first friendship. God is infinite. And his, his love is infinite. And his happiness and his fellowship and what we call the Trinity or the three in one is infinite. The Trinity has always existed in the beginning God. It has always existed in loving, joyful delight. I often wonder when I think about the eternal nature of God and this community that has always existed, I often wonder what was God thinking, what was he doing? And um, I mentioned some of the things he was thinking as I close today, but I want to use a quote from a great book that's made its way around Cornerstone the last couple of years called The Great Dance by Baxter Kruger. Listen how he describes the reality of an eternal God living in community. This is what he said. All along, I had been thinking about God the wrong way. All along, I had misjudged the very being of God. I had been bl a blind idiot. God is not some faceless, all-powerful abstraction. God is Father, Son, and Spirit existing in passionate and joyous fellowship. The Trinity is not three highly committed religious types sitting around in some room in heaven. The Trinity is a circle of shared life, and the life shared is full, not empty, abounding, and rich and beautiful, not lonely, not sad, not boring. Isn't that beautiful? And listen to what he continues to say. There has never been a moment in all eternity when God was alone. God has always existed in relationship, fellowship, camaraderie, togetherness, communion have always been at the center of the very being of God and it always will be. So when we say in the beginning God, this is what we mean. This is what Genesis is saying. In the beginning there has always been this family. God experiencing loving, joyful delight. A lot of people say, how do you know God experiences delight and joy? Well, it's described in several places. You jump way ahead into the New Testament, you get the Jewish rabbi Saul. We know him as Paul. 
He's, he uses the word blessed to describe the sovereign creator, but the word blessed that he's using is a word that's used to describe happiness and joy. How many of you have thought of God that way, that he's happy and he exists in joyful community? In the beginning, God, that community. Remember how the gospel writer John starts his book? It parallels Genesis. In the beginning was the word, a direct mention to the son, that part of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. It gets to verse nine, it says, and that word, that part of God was entering the world. Direct mention to Jesus. Bereshit Elohim. Now why does that matter? See, I think this is the first anchor for our life. It's this reality that places us within a context. Leslie Newbegin was a, uh, just a brilliant um, thinker, missionary to India uh, about 100 years ago. And as he was ministering to Indians there, he realized that what he needed to do is he needed to help frame people's story in God's story. So rather than teaching theological principles, he had to help people find their story in a way that fit into God's story. And he would say things, the beginning of understanding God is to understand the story that you fit in. Which story are you a part of? In other words, we have to help people see that they belong to a big story. So what that means for us, because the same is true, is that your story did not begin with your mom and dad. It didn't even begin when your grandparents met or with your ancestors. It all starts in the beginning, God. That's your context of your story. And the things that you enjoy in your story also all start with God. So it's probably hard to think back to the first time you experienced real intimacy with a friend or a sibling or in a marriage. But I can tell you that that experience of intimacy, that was not the first time that it had ever been experienced. It comes in a context. The first time you experienced peace, I'll tell you, it did not start there in that moment. The first time you fell in love, it did not start there in that moment. The first time you experienced joy and delight over your hard work and the things that you create, it did not start there. All of those things are the eternal experience of the three in one. And God shares them with us all the time. Everything in our life is set on that first anchor. So we take our story, and it's not just our story, we take the many stories that make up our story. And we place that within God's story. It all starts with him, in the beginning, God. So this is the start. And um, all right, I wanna, I wanna kind of begin to wrap up by helping bring this story down into a very personal, bring it down to a very personal level. I'll admit this, these truths, in the beginning, God, he's eternal. It has the potential to make a person feel very small and insignificant. Um, one of the good things about understanding this is that it's hard to be a proud person if you know your context. But one of the downsides is you can feel very small. And, and the way the Genesis story is told, it's not meant to leave us feeling small. It's meant to leave us feeling affirmed and loved and thought of and cared about. And so I wanna prove it to you in a couple ways. This week, I wanna encourage you to read Genesis 1 and 2. And as you do that, what you'll notice is that the same story is told in two slightly different ways. Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi in England, he says that it's a single story told two different ways. 
So both can be true. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 1 is God is presented as this great big God, and the name for God is what we looked at a second ago, Elohim. But if you get to chapter 2, verse 4 in Genesis, so we move from chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God, and we move to chapter 2, verse 4, God is described as the Lord God. So if you look at your Bible, you see Lord, L-O-R-D. It's hard to explain right now, but there's not a, a word in our language or in your Bible that is more full of meaning than this word, okay? But here's what's happening. God is trying to make himself more personal. So Lord actually translates to the words Yahweh or Yehovah, two different ways to translate the same word. Here's what God's doing. He's not just introducing himself as this powerful creator. He's showing us and telling us his name. So chapter one, it's this all-powerful creator. Chapter two, he tells us his name. Now this back and forth continues. Chapter one, we're told that he makes mankind. Chapter two, Adam is given a name. Eve is given a name. Chapter one, we're told that God spoke humanity into being. Chapter two, we see that God gets down on the ground and he fashions man out of the dirt and he breathes into him and he fashions a woman out of Adam's ribs. It's not just a human race, it's actual people. Chapter one, God fills the earth with life. Chapter two, he plants a garden. Chapter one, he speaks. Chapter two, he empathizes with Adam's loneliness. Chapter one, he creates the universe. Awesome, limitless power. Chapter two, you know what he creates? He creates relationships and a marriage and family. And he's presented more as an attentive artist and a loving creator. And he gives dignified work. See, everything is getting more and more personal. See, it's not just enough to see that God created and that we belong to him. We need to also see that we are a delight to him. And he wishes to share his loving, joyful delight with us right now. And so just in the telling of the creation story, we see the magnificence of God, but we also see his personal loving nature, which he wishes to share with us. Here's the other thing I want to show you about how this creation story is about love and affection with you. In the beginning, God's a big thing, but in the beginning, God was thinking of you. So I mentioned earlier how Baxter Kruger describes what God was doing in eternity past, that he was always existing in friendship and camaraderie. But did you know there's a couple places in the New Testament where we're given insight about what God was thinking about in eternity past? So think about that. We get, we're given insight into what was on his mind, what they were discussing, what were they were dreaming about. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 is one of those places. Look what it says. For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. And he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to his good pleasure and will. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. You know what that makes me think? There's never been a moment that I have not belonged to God. It makes me think the same about you. There's never been a moment that you have not belonged to God. Even people that deny the existence of God or perhaps worship other gods, there's never been a moment that they have not belonged to God. Then you add to that 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. And this is speaking of our redemption and rescue that would come through that word we just read about, Jesus. It says this, He, Jesus, 
was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So not only was he thinking of us before the creation of the world, he was thinking of our loving rescue and his sacrifice for us. See, a cre creation story can leave you feeling very humble by the, the, the magnificence and the wonder of God, but the creation story in the beginning, God, it also should leave you feeling affirmed and loved and seen. You have always belonged to him. I wish I could describe it better. So I'm gonna use the qu a quote from one of the best preachers that's ever existed. He's one of my favorite preachers. He actually died this week on Tuesday. His name is Ravi Zacharias. He's an Indian-born preacher. I love the way he describes uh, God and life and places us within that context. And I want to read a quote from the close of one of his last live messages. And you tell me if this is Bereshit Elohim in the beginning God. He says, I sometimes think about the cross and I shut my eyes and I try to see the cruel nails and the crown of thorns and Jesus crucified for me. But even could I see him die, I would but see but a little part of that great love that like a fire is always burning in his heart. And then he says this, you are valuable, you are unique. You are a composite fashioned in the image of God for a particular purpose. And amen to that. And that's something that I can sign up for and that's something I can live in and that's something that I can flourish in. And that's what we're hoping for you this summer, Cornerstone, that uh, these anchors will help us flourish. You are valuable, you are unique, you are a composite fashioned in the image of God for a particular pur purpose. So let's dive into that more. So wherever you're at at home, I um, just want to invite you to go to the quiet place of prayer. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And I want to pray right from Scripture, from Colossians chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4. This is what it says. You, God, are before all things, and in you all things hold together. And you are the head of your body, the church. And you are the beginning, the Bereshit, and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything you may have supremacy. May it be true of our lives, God. And then from Revelation chapter four, you are worthy, our God and our Lord, Yahweh Elohim, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Father, I bless everyone wherever they're at watching this message with a strong sense of who they are and the foundation, the context of their life. May you anchor us in these great stories, Father, and may it start with this one, in the beginning God thought of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. That's a great word for us today, and how beautiful was it to see El Dorado Canyon. As Brian mentioned, as we continue to plan for our reopening, we wanna invite you to our summer vision night on Thursday, June 4th at 8 p.m. Our leadership team will be hosting a webinar to share our vision for the summer and reopening phases. There will also be a question and answer time to address your questions and concerns. All the info, including the webinar link, can be found on our upcoming events page of our website and app. 
Because of your generosity, we have been able to make several special donations during this pandemic. Please visit our website for more info on how to set up reoccurring giving or make a special donation to our COVID-19 giving fund. Kids, congratulations. Parents, congratulations. You finished online learning. I wish you all the best beginning of your summer and happy Memorial Day. We'll see you again next week.